we're heading into a beautiful weekend. Nothing but sun and highs in the 20s. Wouldn't it be great if we could enjoy a beer in the sun across the city of Vancouver? There's so many parks and plazas for getting, you know, gathering with your bubble friends. But sadly, where I live here in Vancouver, we're still debating where we can do this. What we heard from people loud and clear um, that they really wanted was to be able to have um, the ability to drink in parks um, and in green space. And yeah. So this was really a very small activation by the city of Vancouver. And what people really want is the ability to enjoy alcohol outside in their local parks. That was Sarah Kirby Young, uh, city councillor in Vancouver. And the city of Vancouver does vote next week on whether to approve drinking in designated areas in the city in public pl- a few public plazas. Uh, they did it last year in a few small spots. Uh, Sarah Kirby Young's point, of course, as usual, is that park board in parks in Vancouver, we have a unique situation where we have a park board and they decide where you drink in which parks. And they've been quite restrictive as well. So the city of Vancouver park board generally have been very restrictive and where you can drink. You know, I don't know why Vancouver can't figure this out. Uh, maybe they'll figure it out post-pandemic. I don't know. It's, it's really disappointing, I think, for a lot of Vancouverites. And I think we heard a bit of that, that the people want this. You know, and if you want to walk around the city, you see people drinking anyways. Pretty much anywhere you go in this region, you see people having uh, sips of drinks in parks or in plazas. Um, it seems to be happening, whether it's illegal or not. So many other municipalities actually have figured out how to do that. Uh, for example, uh, New West, Coquitlam, and the city of North Vancouver. So joining me now is that one town that really did figure it out early on, the city of North Vancouver, Linda Buchanan, mayor of uh, North Van, the city. Hi, Linda. Hi, George. Thanks for having me this morning. Pleasure. So, okay, so it's been a year since you guys approved this. Uh, you loosened up your rules. Uh, take me back. You know, how much, is it been, is it been madness and chaos? Or are, there, are there people going nuts in North Van because they can <laughs> drink and everywhere? Or is it been quite a success? The sky has not fallen. No, it's uh, it has been overwhelmingly positive. So yes, it's been about a year since we approved. Um, it's June first was when it officially started. Um, but really, one of the the greatest pleasures for me personally to come out of this pandemic was seeing our parks um, over this past year busier and more lively than ever before. And I think for me, what was really important. Um, over 80% or 80% of the residents in the city of North Vancouver live in multifamily buildings. Um, so our community parks, for me, are really, you know, we want them to be considered an extension of their own backyards. And, and, and really, you know, with public health guidelines in place, when we, were, when we were looking at moving into the summer last year, you know, for a lot of people who live in, in these uh, uh, buildings, um, they're seniors, they're, they live alone, and so we wanted families and friends uh, to be able to gather with, the, with people mm-hmm. and socialize that was also safe. So our parks are many of the, the only places that they were able to do that. It's not just parks, though. You've got some other locations. I mean, I don't know if I classify them as parks, some of the community areas that you have, because you don't have a park board, so you have control over your parks and other areas. What are some we, of the areas that you designated for, for, drink, for dr- allowing drinking? So the majority of them are our parks. There's uh, there is a couple public uh, public plaza areas. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one uh, civic plaza, which is uh, right where city hall and the library is. That was in our evaluation back in the fall. Was one area that we chose not to continue to to put it in that area, just more so because it was. Uh, much closer to residential and and more hard built environment where sound reverberates. Sure, yeah, you, get the, you don't want to get the you, complaints. You have to find the right spots. Yeah, so for the most part, it, it, like I said, it was uh, absolutely overwhelmingly positive, a positive. And so, 
you know, we um, we overwhelmingly, uh, as a council, unanimously approved it to be a permanent bylaw. So, um, okay. so it's permanent. That, it's now permanent. Yes. I was there on the weekend, and I, to be honest, I was uh, quite surprised. The, you know, the, you may have those rules, but I'm just, I noticed that people were kind of just doing it anywhere. <laughs> I <laughs> well, mean, it seemed I think like there were a lot what... of family with their and the dogs and their kids, and they were sitting in playgrounds, and they were sitting. Uh, there didn't seem to be, and I saw police, but nobody seemed to be doing. It would seem it seemed super cash. Well, I, you know, I mean, we have the rules in the pl- in place, and there's rules in place for a reason. So people have been following have been following the rules. Um, our police, obviously, when we when we brought this when I brought this forward last year, they were part of the process of of putting this together. And um, you know, of course, they were. Uh, we talked to them after the pilot was over to get their feedback. And again, you know, they they didn't see any increase. Uh, volumes of calls, um, you know, really people behaved really appropriately. And, you know, it was about allowing people to gather. And it's been wonderful to see, you know, even in the fall when it was not even great weather, you know, there was groups of people gathering in the rain. Now, I don't mm-hmm. know if they were all drinking, but... No, but they, you're, that's all we had, a lot of people who live in apartments. You, you don't, yes. you couldn't get, you don't, you don't have a balcony, you don't have any outside space. You exactly. rely on community space to, to do whatever, whether you want to have a drink or not. Yep. And so we've seen, you know, groups of people in the rain under their umbrellas. You know, when the weather's great, we see far more people come out. There's birthday celebrations. There's anniversaries. There's been micro weddings. Um, you know, it's just like I said, I, I was born and raised in the city of North Vancouver. I've never seen, you know, some of the parks that we've designated busier and more active. And, you know, what I also heard, which was, you know, was from the restaurants and the breweries and uh, like in the community is that this has led to an increase in takeout and delivery to to these public right. uh, places. And benefit, so, of course, yeah. Well, and this was something that came out of my business advisory roundtable. And so, you know, while supporting business was a priority uh, when I brought this forward, is this was really about supporting people. So, you know, mm-hmm. one of the great things for me, too, and shortly after we approved the, the pilot and the bylaw, um, I received a, an email from one of uh, an 80-year-old lady, who, a woman who lives across the street from one of the parks. And she was very excited. She was so thankful to see this bylaw introduced because what it meant for her was that she could now, you know, take, and she said, I can take a beer and <laughs> go get my takeout yeah. and meet, meet my friend in the park and play Scrabble, but still be able to adhere to the public health rules. And that's, that's what not this the is kind a- of madness that you might have expected. You know? <laughs> it's no. like, this is literally somebody just having a beer with a friend playing Scrabble. It doesn't get more passive than that. No, and I think that's what it's all about. It's about introducing policy that addresses the needs of people. It supports our businesses. We're building community, um, and we just know we're taking steps to really support to support people. And I know from talking to my uh, friend and colleague, Mayor West in Poco, it's actually Port Coquitlam that has this, not not Coquitlam. Yeah, um, right. So. Oh, uh, we get in trouble with Mayor West now for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> his, uh, oh, he'll be good. Uh, his uh, community, um, their experience has been very slim- similar to ours, and now I believe, you know, Delta is moving forward. West Vancouver has approved a pilot in one of one of their parks. So, you know, this this is really, um, you know, something people have been asking for for a very, very long yeah. time. I mean, I grew up here, and I, I remember my parents, my mom was from England, and she would say, why are we so strict about this? This is years ago about, 
you know, we were so uptight about this drinking thing. And it's, you know, there's always this argument, oh, well, it's an influence, you know, it's a, it's a problem because you were encouraging it. But it's really just if you make it casual, it becomes less of a stressful thing that then you don't have those troublemakers that just go to party in parks, which, you know, that happens, of course, still. But you can manage that kind of situation as you always have. But generally, people seem pretty happy about just, you know, being yeah. casual about it. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, the rules, the you know, all the other rules are still in place. Yeah, you know, drinking underage, drinking and driving, mm-hmm. you know, uh, being intoxicated in a public place. Those don't change. Those right. have not changed. And I think, you know, so again, we haven't we haven't seen that. Um, I think one of the things that I will say, you know, that we've learned from our experience is that, you know, we needed to um, increase the number of washrooms that people had accessibility, to, you know, had uh, access to. So we've, we have done that. Um, we had more recycling and garbage. You know, we always ask people what you take in, please right. take out. But of course, not everyone does that. So, so we've put more... Yeah. We've put more in the parks for this year, and we've our staff have been amazing and, and have put picnic tables like, uh, you I know, saw that. Yeah, they're, everywhere. they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Yeah. So, okay. Mayor Buchanan, I really appreciate uh, you taking this time to talk, tell us about your success in Nor- in City of North Van, and uh, thanks for for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, George. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you. Okay. That's Take little, care. Bye bye. George Affleck in for Mike Smith this week. Before the break, we heard from uh, Minister Farnworth uh, regarding the gang violence that's been uh, happening. I mean, once again, happened last night. Uh, there was a shooting and a killing in Burnaby. Uh, Minister Farnworth didn't provide much, uh, you know, clarity on what the province will be doing related to this. It's just that he answered some questions. He didn't have any announcements. Uh, we're still not sure what the province plans to do uh, in a in a bigger way. So, you know, feel free to call our buzz line at 604-331-2899, 604-331-2899. Let us know, is the province, is Minister Farmworth and, the, and his ministry, is the province doing enough to deal with this gang violence that we're seeing so much of recently? Is the province doing enough to deal with the gang violence we've been seeing? Call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. So, you know, BC has never really embraced rapid testing. We get on this COVID thing. So rapid testing has been something that was never... It, really embraced. Dr. Bonnie Henry and her team simply did not think it was something that, that, that should be prioritized. But a pilot project at UBC shows that what an effective tool it can be. The study identified more than two dozen students with COVID-19. To tell us more about the study, we're joined by Sabrina Wong from UBC. She's the UBC School of Nursing and Center for Health Services and Policy Research. She is the lead of this UBC rapid testing pilot that ran from February to April of this year. Hello, Ms. Wong. Hi. Thanks, thanks for, for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Tell, tell us more about this study and, and where you're at with it. Yeah, so the pilot project ran from February to April. And um, so it's over and um, sort of, you know, the end of the story is that we're trying to work on a summer screening site. But for the February to April one, what we did was we tested um, students uh, who were not symptomatic for covid to see if we could help with um, screening for COVID-19. And the results showed what in this initial study? So the results showed that um, we had, we did over 3,500 tests in over a thousand unique individuals that came through. And um, we were able to find some positives. And so that's a good news story that by and far, most of the people were negative 
mm-hmm. um, but that we were able to, um, what we say, catch a few positives, and um, we were able to catch them early on in their um, infection, and so we were able to uh, break chains of transmission earlier than um, potentially if they had gone in once they had symptoms and gone in for what we call the nasal pharyngeal swab, which is a, you know, going to one of the public health testing sites. And, and these, I'm not sure how much, how much detail or how close you were to these students when you found out they were positive, but how surprised were they that they had it? Um, some of them were surprised. They, they, they had no idea. They don't, they didn't know where, where they might've got right. it from mm-hmm. because they said, you know, we're, I've been very careful. I see the same group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, they were, they were happy that they were able to have it detected early and not be, um, you know, a source of transmission to other students because they are living in congregate housing. Right, so, you so that that's a good thing that we were able to help remove them. Especially that. now with variants, I mean, that would be the speed at which it moves around now is significant. The ben- you, met, you kind of touched on the benefits of doing this, but so to describe. I mean, that's the key benefit is getting early, you know, knowing early so that you can tell everybody they've been in contact with. That's the basic major benefit. So you just stop the spread. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm at a loss, and I think a lot of people are of why. There was no the the provincial government here was so apprehensive about doing this. Why do you think there was apprehension in BC to do rapid testing? Yeah, so I wasn't really part of the, those conversations, so I can't really comment mm-hmm. on that. Um, I think it is fair to say that uh, BC was really focused on the fundamentals of what was going on with COVID nineteen at the time. Um, and that um, they were also interested in understanding what would happen with rapid testing and pilot sites. And now that we have some results, um, hopefully it can be used for um, policy changes and such. So literally making decisions about where perhaps it should be going, because this, this virus could be with us for a long time, and rapid testing will provide us with information. When Because if, even if you get the vaccine and you get your double dose, uh, you can still test positive and still potentially we're still learning if they can spread the disease to other people. So I assume that this would be something that would be effective once we get through uh, the pandemic to the, at the level it is now. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, rapid testing definitely has utility mm-hmm. uh, moving forward. So even with the vac- you know, people getting vaccinations, we don't know yet how the vaccinations are going to react with the variants, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, people it, who will not get vaccinated because they don't want to or whatever. We've seen that as well. So, yeah, it is going to be with us for a while. And, and the rapid antigen testing can help us um, in, in areas where there's inherent risk. So, um, for instance, congregate housing sites. So it could be student residences. It could be migrant farm workers who um, come here to help us with our farming and are living in congregate housing. It could be tree planting sites, mining sites, those kinds of things. Um, And it can also be used uh, in uh, where where people um, don't, can't really physical distance. So things like processing plants, food processing plants, Mm -hmm. um, conferences, um, you know, large events, 
even potentially weddings, those kinds of things. So that we can get back to whatever normal might be faster, potentially, if we do that. I mean, if we get to the next phase of decreasing uh, or increasing our events that we can do, and Dr. Bonnie Henry talked about that earlier. We heard some clips, and she was saying potentially toward, you know, the, towards the end of summer there might be events, but rapid testing could be a great way to add some uh, backup to, the, to that and to provide uh, confidence that there's, this won't spread at an event. Your, your study, um, there's a next step. What's, what's the next steps for the study? Yeah, so the next steps is to um, really try to test self-administration. So we have our own okay. processes here in Canada. Uh, we know that this is happening in other places. So, you know, your listeners might think, well, this isn't anything new. Why do we have to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, but Canada has its own processes. So our, now we're going to move into a clinical trial where we can uh, look and see the self-administration feasibility. And if it goes through with self-administration, then what that could mean for Canada is that it could rapid antigen testing could be widely available to the public so they can buy a test off the shelf. And are those tests varied or are they all the same? What are the, what are the, the self-tests like? Um, there's, well, uh, I don't actually know. I mean, I think some of them, there's breath. Right. There's breath tests that are being done. There's saliva, the swish and spit, um, pilot projects that are going on now with the kids. Um, and then there's the nasal swab. So we're, we're going to be looking at the nasal swabbing, um, which is the one you, that doesn't go Not very all the way far in. up your nose. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's right. Because <laughs> I can't imagine most people would want to do that themselves. I mean, it's it doesn't Yeah, no, like... I don't think they can. <laughs> okay. All right, Ms. Wong, thanks very much for joining me today. Yeah, you're welcome, and thanks for having me. George Affleck in for Mike Smith this week, the last day of the week, Friday. Mike will be back on Monday. So before the break, we heard from Sabrina Wong from UBC's School of Nursing and Health Services and Policy Research. She's a lead of this UBC rapid testing pilot that ran from February to April of this year. Their study shows concise data that provides that proves uh, that rapid testing works. And we know that even when you are vaccinated, you can still get COVID-19. Our lines are open if you want to chat about whether we should be doing more rapid testing or not. Call 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898 if you want to chat about whether we should be doing more about more rapid testing or not. Joining me now, though, is Renee Merrifield. She's the BC Liberal Health Critic, and she has been vocal about the lack of rapid testing. Hello, Ms. Merrifield. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining me. So what are your thoughts on the study? You've had a chance to look at some of the results. What are your thoughts on this study so far? Oh, I'm so excited. I am so excited. Finally, we have substantiated research that's being done in BC, for BC, and we're seeing the positive uh, aspects of rapid testing. Other tests have been done out in the Maritimes and in Ontario, but this is really uh, exciting that we're seeing this coming to fruition here. You've been vocal about this. Your party's been vocal about this. That, that why, it was one of the things, you know, when we think back to, you know, the, 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 all three parties were united. But this was one thing that you kind of always were saying, why are we not doing more rapid tests? And why do you think the BC didn't do more of it? I have no idea. <laughs> I, it doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, in checking some of the statistics just as of uh, yesterday, BC is the absolute lowest in our use of rapid testing. We rank the last in all of Canada. 
Why this is the case, I have no idea. Right when the pandemic hit, WHO came out and said, test, test, test again, test more uh, so that you're not flying blind. You're not in the dark. Uh, we've seen the, you know, the uh, NASI, we've seen uh, the CDC, we've seen, you know, our, our federal guidelines, we've seen our prime minister saying, test, you know, why are you not using these? So we keep sounding the alarm bell. We're working alongside organizations that are doing the work, that are willing to do the work, uh, like uh, the seniors advocates, like, uh, you know, some of the other um, hospitals and, uh, and health authorities who are really advocating to say, we need to be testing. You had the te- we had these kits that were available. We just didn't use them, which is surprising. Do you think that? And 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 quite often the NDP would point to Dr. Bonnie Henry and say, "Well, she says we shouldn't do it, so you know we're just following her lead." Is that a cop out on their part? You know, I, w- I won't say cop out, but I I do think that there was. Um, especially at the very beginning of the pandemic, there was wisdom in having one singular voice that was directing things. We didn't know enough about the virus. We didn't know enough about preventative measures. We didn't know enough about, uh, you know, what would work and what wouldn't. As we have seen rapid testing work across Canada, in North America, you've got Dr. Michael Mina from Harvard, who is absolutely sounding the alarm bell with rapid tests. We've got in the U.S. four now, four at-home rapid tests that are being deployed. We've got the U.K. giving every single household a rapid test. Uh, you know, why we are not doing it here, why, I think it's time. And, uh, and it is time for other voices to be loud and to say, we're demanding it. It's a way that we can protect, protect ourselves. It's a way that we can break transmission. And it's really a way that we can uh, and protect those that are most vulnerable. Don't you feel, though, as we head out, you know, we're getting the vaccine, we're going to get the double vaccine, we're going to we're going to heading in the right direction that, you know, what's the point now? Let's just kind of move on with our lives. Like, well, why bother? Is there a need for rapid testing in the future? <laughs> oh, that's a great point. George. I, you know, I wish I wish that the vaccine was going to be the cure all. The vaccine is definitely hope and it's a silver lining. Absolutely. But what we have seen and what we've heard from the PHO yesterday was that it's not going to completely stop transmission. And uh, we are going to still see cases. They just won't have the same effect on us. They won't, we won't have the same numbers of hospitalizations and ICUs and, and deaths that we've seen occur to date. So I do believe that now is the time to activate, to have as many preventative measures as we possibly can, and to, and to empower people to take back their lives and, and, and really recreate some semblance of normalcy. There is, uh, as the study concludes or, or re- recommends, that there are certain sectors that also should be prioritized. And, and also, we have all this data now on hotspots, and we're certainly vaccinating based on hotspots. Why not vaccinate or why not do rapid tests where we know there are hotspots or whether we know there are vulnerable populations? And, and is that, that's obviously what you're asking and have been asking. Absolutely. And we've got some incredible advocates who are, you know, I'm just going to amplify their voice. And that's, you know, we've got Dr. Victor Leung, who is working um, in some of those hot spots, working alongside community groups, has done a full presentation to uh, the BC CDC to say, this is where we need to be doing it. We need to empower these community groups in the hot spots to do these rapid tests. They can't afford the, you know, the two, three days. We're waiting until June until we have any sick pay that's going to be paid. So, 
you know, people are going to work sick and we have to break those transmission uh, uh, forms. And, and this is a great way to do it. Pop-up clinic in a hot spot. Someone can go on their way to work. 15 minutes later, they, you know, they've got some, at least some degree of accuracy. And right now it's showing even better than what we thought. So uh, that accuracy and that certainty allows people to continue on in their lives. But there still seems to be apprehension from from the NDP. And so how are you, as an elected representative in the legislature, going to push this forward and try to get them to, to move faster? Do you think this study help? Or is there anything else that can encourage them to move forward faster with rapid testing? Absolutely, this study helps. And, you know, the other advocacy groups coming alongside, this is not just our voice. This is not just the other party, you know, the Green Party's voice. This is this is B.C., BC is asking for this. BC is is getting loud and saying, "Hey, as the vaccine rolls out, we want preventative measures." And uh, I'm 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 happy to continue on that path. And I'm really excited about this UBC study that shows it. It you know, rapid testing does catch uh, the asymptomatic and and those that don't don't even know that they are are actually infected. All right, Ms. Maryville, thanks very much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. All right, bye bye. This is George Affleckin for Mike Smith. I uh, hope you're enjoying your Friday, beautiful sunny Friday here in the Lower Mainland. So I think we all know that small business has been hit hardest during this pandemic, but restaurants, well, they've been hit the worst. Every day I see a new four-lease sign on what was the home of a, a great little restaurant I used to love. Takeout and patio or dining is nice, but I, I doubt it pays the bills and staff are cut to the minimum. My first jobs actually were working in restaurants, and I wouldn't have made it through, uh, you know, wouldn't have made it through university without working in restaurants in my twenties. Joining me to talk about the challenges in rest in the restaurant industry and and what they're asking for is Ian Tossenson, CEO of the BC Restaurant Association. Hello, Ian. Morning, George. How you doing? Good. So, there's a big ask you're going for here. This is you guys have been challenged. We know this. What's the big ask? What's going on? Well, I think the, the you know, and, and Restaurants Canada were commenting on this. Uh, the federal government pr- program, which is the rent subsidy program and the wage subsidy program, um, are scheduled to sort of start sunsetting in, in September. And the the ask is to take this into the spring of 2022, because we're just we're not going to pull out of this uh, any that quickly. And and those two programs in particular have been a saving saving grace on the provincial uh, uh, front. There is uh, there was a circuit breaker which uh, re- businesses could get up to twenty thousand dollars, primarily dedicated to restaurants, mm-hmm. and that was on top of uh, recovery grants up to thirty thousand. Um, you know, and those are really helpful, but they're not even close to what you know the the the, uh, the sales losses have been. Particularly, I think we're now into what four four and a half weeks now of this latest closure or the you know, closure we've been in. Mm-hmm. So it's tough and. Um, I, the only saving grace we have right now is that for those that have patios, we've had some pretty good weather that's really helping some people get to the, yeah. you know, hopefully the reopening. But not enough when you look at the size of the inside, or even if you expand a patio, it still don't even equal most of the inside space. So, but, that, but asking yeah. for that kind of cash from the federal government and money from the province, I mean, as an industry, you know, your other competitors for the cash, the retailers or whoever, who also might be facing some of the same challenges, are going to go, what about us? What about us? Yeah, I know. Well, but, you know, we were closed. I mean, retailers were never closed like we've been closed. And that's actually and, uh, unique to BC, too. It is. There's like, well, BC, you know, so other provinces may be worse, but, you know, BC, we were never closed. 
what they did in the States, too, is interesting, is that they have the uh, the American, I can't remember what it's called, but essentially what you do is you take your sales that you had in 2019 and, uh, and subtract your sales in 2020, and you can get up to $5 million per restaurant, up to, I think, $10 million to restaurant group. So wow. they, they're going to flush it. And, and I think there's some rationale for that. I mean, it's, it's an awful lot of money, but the fact is, is that these businesses have, have to, you know, it wasn't their choice to close and they've expended a lot of time and effort uh, to be safe and to provide that safe environment. So it's going to be, I don't know what the, what it looks like. I mean, without the supports, um, the report yesterday was that 50% of the restaurants could be at risk. 50%. I think even, so how many restaurants would that, you mean lose, they'd be gone forever. Yeah. We already, how many have we lost already in BC? Do you think? Well, we know that uh, we probably lost about 20% of 15,000 restaurants. So there's there's 3,000 restaurants that are Across either BC. shuttered and waiting to reopen or just not reopening again. And you mentioned that about there's a lot of mm-hmm. furby signs. Yeah. Um, without some, you know, some really strong sustaining aid, um, the you know, Restaurants Canada said yesterday and the national, but up to 50% of restaurants could be gone. That would be, you know, 7,500 restaurants in BC. I, I don't think it's going to come to that. It, it's all going to depend now on when we can open. And the, the when has to be, though, driven by the numbers have to be right. So the industry is, is really anxious right now about, I mean, every day it's like, what have you heard? What have you heard? And, and all we, and we've been asking the government for an opening date like they did in Saskatchewan, but there's a reluctance to do that. So Dr. Henry is saying, we'll have more to say after a long weekend. So I don't think we're going to see and start dining Mm. until beginning of June. Yeah, I think the number's got to get down to under 200 per day at least before you get the confidence and the variance and, uh, you know, double doses. What what kind of dollar numbers are we talking about? I mean, if you were to say to the province, let's focus on the province, we need... Blank millions, blank billions. What do you What do you need? Any idea what the cap well, we're talking about? Well, I think it's, you probably you, you know if you look at say a thirty to forty percent contraction in the industry. So let's just say thirty percent because mm-hmm. I can do the math pretty fast. Off of fifteen billion dollars, you're looking at four and a half billion dollars to make the industry whole. So if you sort of go and say, you know what, we're going to just make everybody whole from uh, where where we came from. It's about a four and a half billion dollar problem. I mean this. The closure we estimated that's happening we're into right now will probably be about a billion dollars in lost sales. And your industry is what? Would it be the number one employer of young people in their you know late teens to early twenties? Yeah, 20s? I think fifteen to twenty four is major. Yep. It's the third largest employer, uh, employer in British Columbia, and a really important part of that is fifteen to twenty four year olds, and a lot of that uh, uh, are women. And you mentioned getting through university. I mean, the challenges we have coming ahead here is not once we get started, but um, we are going to have a horrific labor shortage. Can you believe that? Um, We had a labor shortage in kitchens before the pandemic, and uh, we were already the businesses are struggling. So we we had a very uh, really good program with um, uh, experienced foreign worker culinary uh, program that we were running before the pandemic. But now we're seeing, um, we had a call with Whistler a couple of weeks ago, and they're a little bit even afraid to reopen because it, a lot of the staff that they had working in the front of the house of restaurants yeah. have left. 
Oh, <laughs> well, that, that's, I mean, that's obviously it's a, it's a challenge, but I, and, and of course, if they come back, they have to get their vaccinations because there's a hot spot. That's one yeah. question I have is, you know, these, these areas where we've fully vaccinated, uh, regional, you look at the province, you look at Prince Rupert, you've got Whistler, which may be a bit more challenging because it's a tourist town. Other places, I think Golden's getting it done now. Yeah. Why not say in those towns, because most of them, they're pretty interesting. They, everybody kind of goes to their restaurants, they live their lives. If they've all been vaccinated, why not just open up the restaurants? there why is that not possible i don't understand the rationale george um you know you have a a travel restriction and then these communities are isolated Mm -hmm. they should be able to operate i mean absolutely but there's a real reluctance and i think it's i think it sort of goes well gee if if that happens and they're open in that region but not here people are going to start traveling to these regions so what it's like give them a chance they've got to survive (laughs) come on I, mean, I know it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I think that is something you definitely, I, I think the pressure's on for sure. And I think, I hope that before she announces, you know, mass openings that she should be looking at these hot spots where she's, they're vaccinated. Come on. I mean, Surrey Absolutely. might be complicated in other areas. Like, you know, okay, you've done in a regional, like down in the, this region, it might be tough, but if you're talking about remote communities, uh, just let them open. Right. Yeah. And the, and the good news uh, is that, hospitality it was earmarked and uh, so they're in the process in, in Fraser Health and also Coastal Health is is uh, doing that for hospitality workers which is great right um, and that was that was really the problem we had in this time was that the variants were just getting into the staff it wasn't a question of our customers or our guests and so this is gonna this will help a lot by having that you know that section of, of our employees uh, vaccinated so that'll that'll help True. so We've got weather, we've got vaccinations, we've got lots of vaccines hope. coming. Hope. We've got hope. a lot of good things going for us here. Just need some cash. <laughs> we just need some cash. All right, Ian. But, you know, what we have is a public that's been just awesome, and I thank everybody for their support, and takeout and delivery, and patios. Thank you so much. Do it all the time. Thanks for joining me, Ian. Thanks, George. Thanks. Bye.